0: You know, Miles, even by X-Men standards, Colossus seems to be a pivotal figure in an awful lot of alien civilizations.
1: Uh, I don't know, Jay. I mean, are you sure they're not just mistaking him for his brother?
0: Ah, oh, come on. That only happened the once. Wait, what
1: other alien cultures has he saved?
0: Saved? None. But he was definitely the prophesied destroyer of Breakworld. Breakworld? Weren't those the
1: ones who brought him back to life? Yep. Ironic, isn't it? This still seems like a stretch to me. Colossus doesn't strike me as the kind of guy who goes around destroying entire planets. Oh, he didn't. He was just prophesied to. That's a relief.
0: I mean, he did effectively destroy their entire power structure and way of life by unseating their power lord, leaving the planet in chaos and civil war and many of its citizens' interstellar refugees. But the planet was still there. Oh,
1: well, damn.
0: Yeah, it's okay. The ones who stayed on Breakworld eventually started rebuilding their civilization and claiming a place in the galactic community.
1: What about the ones who ran away?
0: Oh, they're okay, too. Huh. They moved to San Francisco. What? I'm Jay Adedon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 186 of Jay and Miles explain the X-Men, where we walk you
1: through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to the last time we're going to mention Emerald City Comic Con for a while, because it's coming up, like, really, really soon after this episode goes live.
0: Except that you're going to hear us bring it up again two episodes from now, because that's going to be the live episode that we're recording that weekend. But meanwhile, you should all come see us there. That is going to be... This coming weekend, as you listen to this, it's in Seattle. It is March 1st through 4th. Our live show is going to be on Saturday the 3rd. And we're also that night going to be having a party at Phoenix Comics in Seattle. We'll have the time on the website and all the details for that. That's going to be all ages. You will not need a convention badge to come to the party. There will be cookie cake.
1: Yeah, come hang out. We would love to see you. Listeners are great. You guys are our favorite things about doing this show.
0: It's true. Oh, my God. So I've been... um. You know, we we record a couple of weeks out and I've been in the, the blog comments today where a number of you are rewriting Tom Lair songs to be about the X-Men again.
1: Oh man, I haven't checked the blog for a couple of days because I was out of town. I need to get back on that. That's amazing.
0: Yeah, no, it's it's beautiful. It's beautiful and and phenomenal and splendid. And and listeners who are doing this, you know who you are, and you are wonderful, and we adore you. Um but yeah, come see us. We're gonna be we're also gonna be tabling. We'll be at the show all weekend at table T Eleven and Artist Sally. Um, we will have merch. We will have, we have two new t-shirts. They're old designs, but new versions of them. So we're going to have a red and purple version of Magneto made some valid points so that you too can rock the style and color combo of the master of magnetism. And we have a sort of metallic glittery version of the resist design because glam revolutionaries need
1: t-shirts too. That's right. Let us all resist. Fabulously.
0: And also a bunch of, bunch of new buttons, um, probably some punk patches since I'm making a bunch of them anyway, and I'm going to have extras if I have time to make them. Uh, My mom's going to be there on Friday and Saturday. And yeah,
1: good adventures. Good adventures. But now let's turn to some okay adventures because we're going to tell you about a few issues of Uncanny X-Men.
0: Yeah, so today we're going to be looking at Uncanny X-Men 284 to
1: 286. And it's basically Judgment War light. It really is. Like, okay, do you remember that X-Factor story? It was from X-Factor 43 to 50, and X-Factor went to an unnamed planet where there were all these different fascinating cultures, and the team was divided up among them and had to take various sides, and a lot of them lost their memories, and they formed new identities and new connections, and then there were space gods who were giving thumbs up and thumbs down and had coffee makers for heads. It's also the source, of course, of my my very favorite uh, silly podcast voice to do,
0: which is, of course, ZZ-105 today bringing you Straight issues of Uncanny X-Men, accompanied by Billy Joel covers, played at half-tempo on the Mandolin.
1: Maybe that's what this arc is missing. There's no ZZ-105. There's also no, like, you know, Perfect Sierra or anything like that. Or Space Gods with coffee makers for heads. But it's... Okay, look, we all know ZZ-105 could have taken any of those. That's probably true, yeah. But I think we should probably give some background for what the X-Men are doing at this point in their history leading into the Not Exactly Judgment War. Therefore, previously on X-Men...
0: The X-Men and the first incarnation of X-Factor united after the Muir Island Saga, and then re-split into two teams, both the X-Men, but X-Men Blue and X-Men Gold. Uncanny X-Men, the book we're talking about today, follows the
1: Gold team. Who have we got in the lineup? Well, the team is led by Storm, as well it should be. We also have Jean Grey, Archangel, Colossus, Iceman, and not quite yet Lucas Bishop, but eh, he'll be here before too very long. He's running around doing murders right now. He's a very busy man, Miles. He totally is and I respect that. I mean, I'm not saying I respect murder, but he's got like some believable motivations, if not necessarily some justified motivations.
0: Speaking of respecting murder, I'm really impressed that 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 we haven't gotten more blowback about my my coming out so
1: firmly in favor of opportunistic cannibalism. Actually, I guess we both kind of did. I guess we did, yeah. Listeners, these things just happen. Like, we record our episodes from an outline, but that's mostly just so we don't forget important plot points. Things like opportunistic cannibalism, those just sort of sneak in spontaneously, you know, to our conversations, to cultures. I mean, that's the nature of
0: opportunistic cannibalism. It's generally not premeditated.
1: Was it a, a Kids in the Hall sketch about the amateur cannibal on the airplane? Do you remember that one?
0: It's, I, I... I don't remember whether it was, but it sounds very Kids in the Hall.
1: Yeah, where, you know, the person's just trying a little bite of each person because he's very new at cannibalism, Uh, like, you know, eating little bits of each candy in a box. Anyway, we just ruined it by describing it, but...
0: You know, amateurism is no no excuse for that kind of behavior.
1: (laughs) True. We digress. What we should actually be telling you about is not opportunistic cannibalism, but future douchebag Trevor Fitzroy, because he and his amazingly mulleted minions came back in time from Earth 1191 to be jerks. Fitzroy was captured by his rival, Shinobi Shaw, the ever-sexy, seldom-clothed. Or possibly sexy, but Fitzroy's minions are now on the run from Bishop,
0: Malcolm, and Randall, future mutant cops from the Xavier School Enforcers, so presumably also hall monitors. Uh, these guys idolize the X-Men, but they're pretty sure that our X-Men are impostors. And during their fight... Jean Grey got sorta killed, but temporarily transplanted her mind into the comatose body of Emma Frost until Xavier pulled her back out. Jean's fine now. Emma is still dead and or comatose. They're a little uncertain on which. And most of the information we just gave you is going to be absolutely irrelevant to the upcoming story.
1: But it's good to know where you are. Exactly. Now, speaking of where we are, we are still in the transitional era of the X area of Marvel Comics. So Chris Claremont and Louise Simonson, the main writers of the X-Line for years and years and years, were pretty much forced out. The artists are now writing things, and John Byrne for the most part, but soon Scott Lobdell, will be scripting over those those artists' plots. This arc has Wills Portasio doing art on the entire arc. As far as plotting, though, that gets a little more complicated.
0: So the first issue of this arc is plotted just by Portasio, and the second and third are plotted by Portasio with help from Jim Lee. Scripting likewise undergoes a transition partway through the
1: series, or partway through the story arc, rather. John Byrne scripts the first and second issues, Scott Lobdell scripts the third. Now, this constant turnover and this constant swapping back and forth, as you might imagine, does not do the story any favors. It hasn't for any of the stories we've covered during this era of X-Men or Uncanny X-Men. Pretty soon that's all going to be over. We're going to have Scott Lobdell and Fabian Nicieza writing a lot of the books. We're going to have Will Sportasio, Jim Lee and Rob Liefeld gone to go found image. But right now, we are in the thick of it.
0: And I mentioned before, this this arc really reads a lot like the X-Factor arc, Judgment War. Um, and I'll, I'll link to the episode where we covered that in the visual companion to this one if you decide you want, you want to go hear about that instead.
1: Yeah, I mean, maybe that'll be best. I really enjoyed those episodes that we did about the Judgment War. The similarities are enough that it's kind of strange that the team members who were in the Judgment War didn't comment. But what I think we're seeing here is people plotting the X-Men who have read a lot of the classic, classic era, a lot of the uh, Claremont and Byrne era, and they want to return to that. It kind of seems like they ignore much of what came in between. And it kind of makes sense that that's happening here. I mean, John Byrne is scripting, so of course the era he'd be most familiar with would be the one that he drew back in the day.
0: Yeah, and he's even he even drops in some Burns, as it were some burn burns
1: yeah i oh do you think that if you ever burn somebody he just goes you got burned and it's spelled b-r-y-n-e-d it's possible he is kind of overly expository well there we go perfect okay so we've got our background i guess we might as well jump into the issues themselves let's start with number 284 into the void on where do we go So, hey, starting with the very beginning, Shiro Yoshida, Sunfire, is back. You remember Sunfire? He was a member of the all-new, all-different X-Men and Giant Size X-Men number one. He has a cool, like, dragon fish-looking mask, and his costume is kind of based on the Japanese flag, sort of. And he's a real jerk, and he quits the team, like, every opportunity he has. Yeah, him. He's here now.
0: And forget most of those descriptors, because now his costume is no longer based on the Japanese flag. And big spoiler, but... If you're like me, you will spend this arc waiting and waiting and then being disappointed. He does not quit the team once
1: in this story. Okay, so Jay, I was thinking about this. Um, I was actually uh, talking to uh, Anna about this earlier today. I feel like as X-Men podcasters, we provide a number of services. One of those services is, of course, going through the plot lines of comics that listeners may not have read so they can experience them and decide whether they want to read them or at least have context for others. Another one of those services is taking what may not have worked and— you know, sprucing it up a little, souping it up a little. And therefore, I feel like even though Sunfire doesn't quit the team even once in this arc, we can do better. We can do greater service to Shiro Yoshida's character. So, when we can, let's uh, just modify the continuity a bit there.
0: I don't know. I think that it's important to look at this era and to look at this arc in its own context and in its own light. Part of what we're addressing is how the tone of the books has changed. We're gonna notice a couple other omissions, a couple other callbacks that aren't made, and a couple other notable absences. And I feel like it's important to keep track of this stuff as written. You know, we can we can talk about what we would have done with it. We can fill in blanks, but this isn't really a blank. This is just this is just an absence. And I think we need to cover it with with proper fidelity.
1: Miles Stokes, enthusiast. Jay Edidin, critic and scholar. There you go. Summarized by virtue of whether or not Sunfire should have retroactively quit the team.
0: Look, there's a reason that the collective noun for Edidin's is a pedantry.
1: (laughs) There is indeed, perhaps even multiple reasons. Well, Sunfire, in his non-quitting form, is, as we mentioned back, his costume, as you mentioned, Jay, isn't. Instead, he's wearing... He's wearing a very Portasio costume. Like, you know when celebrities will be on the red carpet before premieres and someone will ask them who they're wearing? Sunfire is wearing Will's Portasio. And what that means
0: is that he's got a tiny cocktail dress with a basic sheath shape and a large bow across the bust line.
1: I actually feel like he would look pretty good in one of those, you know? Yeah, no, he could rock it. He's got a good figure. Yeah, that long ponytail he's got, it would be a good look. But instead, he's wearing a red bodysuit covered in silver armor plates and circuitry all over the place and various ambiguous tech stuff asymmetrically placed. And the longest ponytail I think we have seen in X-Men to this point, other than maybe on Storm done by certain artists. Gideon's is definitely longer. I don't know. I mean, Sunfire's current ponytail is down to like his knees. That's a lot of ponytail. See,
0: you think Gideon's is shorter because you never see it reach that long, but that's because it's always swirling behind him, so you have to account that it's, like,
1: doubled and tripled over. Oh, because Gideon is leaping all the time, and Sunfire tends to fly a little more straightforwardly.
0: No, I think it's actually just part of Gideon's power set, because it even happens when he's standing still.
1: Oh, well, okay, that's reasonable. But to be fair, Shiro Yoshida does at least lampshade the ridiculous design of this costume and talk about how uncomfortable it is, as the scientists who have designed it for him talk it up about how it's going to focus his powers in new and exciting ways.
0: Yeah, I'm with Sunfire on this. I mean, it doesn't specifically make me uncomfortable, but I love his old costume. I think it's a great character statement— it's really visually distinctive, and right now he just kind of looks like every single other generic dude in
1: 1992, in comic books at least. Well, specifically, he looks like every other generic dude in a Wills Portasio comic. Now, I'm not going to say that Wills Portasio is a bad artist. Far from it. He's an excellent artist. I know he has a lot of very dedicated fans and, you know, respect. But one of the flaws that I personally find in his art is that as he adds just more and more, like, fiddly bits and detail and technology and armor and stuff to his characters, they tend to be very genericized. They tend to just look like Will's Portasio characters. We're going to see a lot more of that in this arc, and we'll bring it up as we do.
0: That's something he's eventually going to get better at over time. That's something you see less of in his more recent work. And he's he's an interesting study because he's he's drawn X-Men in, in the last decade as well as this stuff. So you can really kind of see his style evolve, which is really cool. But yeah, at this point... It's 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 just sort of
1: there, and yeah, he doesn't. Those, those designs just aren't that distinctive. Well, where are these non-distinctively designed characters, Jay?
0: They're in the uh, Sakhalin Islands between Russia and Japan, with
1: agents from both standing and looking into an enormous hole in the ground, as one does. And Sunfire's job is to blast this hole open for this joint Japanese-Russian venture. And I do love the narration as he does so. John Byrne does a wonderful job here.
0: And those who thought his first flaring brilliance intolerably bright can only stand dumbstruck as 100 stars seem suddenly to hurl their fury against the shuddering earth.
1: Now that's the narration I come back to X-Men for, nice. I don't know, it's not really recriminatory enough. But it is over the top and I do appreciate excess as uh, may have become evident over the last 185.2 episodes. Anyway, Sunfire gets blasted back from this hole that he blasts open in the Earth, and something emerges. It's a bunch of alien-looking people, and they start slaughtering everyone. That's that's not so good. Uncool. They look kind of like if Wills Portasio drew the Predator. They have blades and guns and bug masks and long hair and future armor and even fancy speech bubbles. So what you're basically saying is that they look like Predator. Uh, Yeah, but like more. Predator squared. Predator to the Portasio power. Sunfire, at this point, decides he's had enough and immediately quits the team. That doesn't actually happen. Well, it probably should have. Speaking of teams, the gold team is on the Blackbird. They're debriefing after their last mission when they fought future douchebag Trevor Fitzroy.
0: And this is where we see Burns starting to lampshade some of the X-Men stories that followed his as Gene says,
1: I'd better be careful about that. If I come back from the dead one more time, I'll be seriously in danger of turning into some kind of walking cliche. Wah, wah. But at the same time, like, this is what, the second time she died? Like, maybe the third? And when she died this time, it was just for a couple pages, just between the end of one issue and the beginning of the next, pretty much.
0: Yeah, but, yeah, that's that's the thing with Jean. She doesn't actually die that much more than anyone in X-Men. It's just that people rag on her about it all the time.
1: I mean, to be fair, the end of the Dark Phoenix saga is probably the single most memorable moment in all of X-Men history. So I think it's kind of an example of the availability heuristic, you know, where you see a news story about a plane crashing, and you figure plane crashes must be very common because of how emotionally devastating your reaction to the story is, when it turns out that plane travel is actually much safer than car travel. It's like that, but with interstellar cosmic forces and superpowers. And as you mentioned, we've got a generation of writers who grew up on this stuff and reading this
0: stuff, so who were predisposed to see it based on, you know, their initial reactions to it, rather than knowing
1: where it fits in the larger narrative. Totally, yeah. So all of the X-Men wonder where Emma Frost, the White Queen's mind is. I mean, Jean went into Emma's body, but Emma's mind didn't seem to go anywhere. Professor Xavier apparently can tell when powerful telepaths die. I guess that's like a tertiary mutation. And he didn't feel that for Jean because she didn't. He also didn't feel it for Emma I don't know if this is ever really gonna be followed up on. I mean, the next time Emma Frost's mind shows up will be way later when she accidentally possesses Iceman and then herself becomes revived. That's something we see a lot in this era is dropped plot threads because the creative teams are shifting around so much that of course things are gonna get lost in the shuffle.
0: This happens to Emma a lot. Like it happened to her after the Dark Phoenix saga and now again. It's less that she gets fridged than she just sort of gets left on ice to be defrosted later.
1: Frosted?
0: Oh, yeah, no, because she stays. No, but no.
1: Damn it. I'm just going to assume that was intentional wordplay because I appreciated it. It was absolutely not. Oh, you ruined all my fun. Sorry. It's true. I am I am the worst. One of the other things that's the worst is how much the panels focus on Emma's unconscious bosom. Like, I understand she's lying down, you want to show that she's unconscious. Is a close-up of her tits, is lovingly rendered unlaced bodice-ness really the way to do that? Nope.
0: And in fact, it falls into one of my least favorite patterns in superhero
1: comics, which is sexy dead ladies. I mean, technically a sexy, comatose lady, but yes, I agree. Same basic trope.
0: Yeah, I use it as shorthand. I mean, it, I, it covers dead or gravely
1: injured. Mm-hmm. And I do want to clarify, Emma Frost is totally a sexy character. She should totally be portrayed as sexy when she's trying to be sexy. In this case, she's unconscious, so it just comes off as a little uncomfortable. Yeah, the agency versus prurience. Exactly. Speaking of objectifying people, sort of, let's check out Iceman's new costume because this is the first time in the X-Men Gold Team era that we've seen him not ice up. Are we objectifying him? I mostly was thinking that it looks like a speed skating outfit. I was just trying to find a good segue. But yeah, you're right. It's sort of a blue and white, adequate superhero-looking costume. I don't know that Iceman's ever had a very exciting costume. Like, when he's iced up, that's when he looks cool. Otherwise, he's just a dude wearing some probably blue and white spandex.
0: Yeah, no, I get the impression with Iceman that his clothes are basically the equivalent of a beach cover-up for him. They're what he wears between doing the things that he actually is doing as a superhero.
1: And one of those things is just about to hit because the Blackbird gets a distress call about an alien invasion from the Sakhalin Islands. Hey, looks like it's Tuesday. The X-Men rush to the rescue and get there just in time to save their former teammate Sunfire, who joins the team and then quits. He does not do that. Aw. Well, apparently, these aliens who are attacking, these predator-looking people, are too alien for Gene or Xavier to psychically whammy or even psychically try to connect to. They are so alien that they think primate is a good name for their leader. Well, either that or they're the Catholic Church. Yeah, I actually had to look this up because it sounded like they were just calling someone like an ape or a monkey. And I was very confused. But apparently primate is in fact a name used in the Catholic Church to talk about a leader. And it's from the Latin primus or primus. I'm not sure how you pronounce it in Latin. And so it actually is appropriate and therefore less funny. And I got to say, I'm a little disappointed.
0: But it is actively misleading here because they're characters who we think are monstrous looking and are not human. They're referring to this character as primate. Eventually, her mask's going to get knocked off and she's going to look human. And I assumed that they were just calling her that the way, you know, periodically, I don't know, the way my grandmother used to occasionally refer to her neighbors by their countries of origin, which was always kind of uncomfortable.
1: Oh, I was just thinking how Katie calls Nightcrawler Fuzzy Elf, but uh, your example is probably a little more accurate. (laughs) Well, there's a big fight, and the aliens retreat from the giant hole in the ground, as do the X-Men. At the last minute, Sunfire saves Colossus, and at this point, he is very Sunfire.
0: Foolish Russian, to hurl yourself unprepared into the hornet's nest. These strangers had come close to besting my power. Yours would be but little against them.
1: He's so delightfully arrogant, although his arrogance does look better in that cool old fish dragon mask, but eh, what can you do? At least he's still our Shiro. Yeah, that's our Shiro. Storm Ponders. So, the bad guys looked like monsters, right? But one of them was concerned about his injured companion during the fight, so they must not be total monsters. Look, monsters can be concerned for one another. I I, I
0: also feel like the the X-Men's eager willingness to to write things off as alien and monstrous as opposed to antagonists or enemies is is massively
1: hypocritical. It's true, but I do kind of like her uh, dialogue here, even if her logic isn't very sound. Warriors, these beings no doubt are.
0: The bodies of their victims attest to that. But we must be careful how we judge them, lest we fall victim to the very prejudices against which we must ever battle.
1: So, basically, one of the X-Men mission statements. That's the thing John Byrne often does in his dialogue. Like, he writes well, and he writes sometimes poetically, but it's very, very on the nose. I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. This is, after all, a superhero comic, but it is a noticeable thing. He's definitely of the let's-describe-exactly-what-we're-doing-as-we're-doing-it school of comics
0: writing, which is certainly an approach—
1: I mean, I think you're just getting more bang for your buck that way. You know, you paid your dollar or dollar 25 or however much comics were in this era. You know, you want to make sure that you don't just get an illustration of what's going on, but also a description of what's going on. It's just rich with narrative possibility. Okay. So the aliens do their best to protect this barrier that Sunfire had been blowing open, this big hole in the ground. They're even blocking the Blackbird's concussion missiles with their bodies and getting, you know, their armor shattered um i gotta say i know it just shows their armor coming off and forge mentions that they're just concussion missiles that won't actually hurt anybody but this kind of reminds me of batman arkham knight where batman's just like running down various criminals on the streets and there's some little story bit about how he's just gently shocking them so they bounce out of the way but i don't think that's actually what's going on okay we all know batman's got a real high death toll he does and so i guess i'll give Zack snyder some credit for just going with it like guess i don't want to give him any credit
0: we don't have no we don't have to give Zack Snyder
1: credit for anything man okay that's probably for the best but in this barrage of we assure you they're non-lethal missiles one of the alien types in fact the primate gets her helmet blown off uh don't drink on duty soldier otherwise i should say you should take a drink and she like you mentioned earlier jay looks human albeit with sweet purple hair awesome right and this is weird because, you know, everyone's talking about how monstrous they were before. We find out that their minds are too alien to be scanned. One of them at one point says Archangel has a hideous countenance. And so I figured, you know, they must have thought that humans were ugly because clearly they were not even remotely human. They probably either just looked like their masks. Maybe those were their faces or they were some kind of other weird alien. But no, they look human too. So maybe they just dislike blue and that's why they thought Archangel looked ugly. I don't know. I mean,
0: yeah, at this point, Archangel's just got blue skin and blonde hair. He's not wearing the skull mask anymore.
1: Right. So what probably is going on here is something we see a lot of in this era. Um, There was that John Byrne quote we had from an episode or two ago where he talked about how he would get pages in very late and sometimes out of order. Maybe he scripted the part uh, where they talked about how hideous the humans were first before he even realized that these characters were going to look human themselves.
0: That's exactly what i figured probably had happened yeah i think i think i think you nailed it
1: well what we find out from the now unhelmeted purple-haired primate is that the aliens were actually trying to protect earth they were trying to protect earth from their own world getting out through this big portal and as if to illustrate her point the hole opens up further and starts sucking everything in heroes first ooh that sucks that takes us to part 2 number 285 down the rabbit hole I want to see the rabbit that lives down that hole. Good Lord. It's great. You know what it reminds me of? As we see our characters get pulled down through this portal and get all stretched out and distorted, almost like Looney Tunes characters, it reminds me of when the New Mutants were pulled into Megalopolis in the New Mutant summer special. And we got that sweet boom boom uh, drawn by Brett Blevins with like her face and body being all stretched out. That's the main thing this story does. It, it reminds me of stories I liked better. You know, speaking of, of Brett Blevins, can I tell them? I think you can tell them. All right. He's going to be one of the folks on our Emerald City Live show this year. So excited! One of my very favorite comics artists, and as it turned out, when we got to meet him a little while ago, a really nice guy.
0: Yeah, he is. He is like the nicest dude ever, and I am. I am super excited about having him on this panel. But anyway, um, back to Uncanny X Men number two hundred eighty-five, which I'm less excited about. It's 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 decent. The forces that pulled our heroes through this this rift, this portal, have also separated them because remember, this is basically judgment war. So we're gonna follow them. Um the, the comic cuts between them. We're gonna follow each group of them as they go through their individual adventures, and we'll start with Gene and Colossus, um, who are following along with the primate who is seriously injured, but not actually dead. This also has my favorite moment of, like, burn-gratuitous description, as in the moment that they hit the ground, Colossus describes their surroundings and the forest that they're landing in.
1: (laughs) Piotr Rasputin, you are truly a hero. Thank you for telling us what's going on as it's happening, and as what it is is you smashing into the earth after having fallen through space.
0: No, like he's describing the climactic zone they're in, And it's like, dude, you are, you just, you're okay. You do your thing, buddy.
1: So my justification for that was always like, maybe the characters were talking really fast, but what if it's the opposite? I mean, we've seen their faces get all stretched out and stuff as they fall, right? So maybe there's lots of time. Maybe he's doing a slow, ponderous David Attenborough. He's just sort of amused and pleased by all that's going on around him. Look at that bird over there. Look at its display of plumage.
0: I'm trying to think of how that would play out for different characters and which one specifically would end up doing Stephen Fry, you're being shagged by a rare parrot.
1: <laughs> Probably someone in Excalibur. I'm going to go ahead and say that. Maybe Alistair Stewart.
0: That seems... No, Alistair Stewart would definitely be the one The one being shagged by the rare parrot. Okay, valid,
1: valid point. Well, or die Thomas, one of them, though. Right. Maybe Brian Braddock. I think a lot of characters in Excalibur could be shagged by a rare parrot.
0: Oh, yeah. That is an excellent point.
1: Well, anyway, this uh, tangent into rare parrot shagging in England aside, the characters are immediately found and rapidly subdued by a bunch of very human-looking folks in very 90s and generically Will's Portacio battle armor.
0: Actually, the parrot was in Australia regardless, X-Men. It's good to be precise about these kinds of things. Now, without their masks, these aliens really just look like Portasio characters. And I keep on bringing up Judgment War, but it's it's one of those things where it's so similar that comparisons are kind of inevitable. And unfortunately for Portasio, what that means is that the the most direct comparison we're making to his art is Paul Smith's. And... (laughs) Not a lot of people are going to stand up well in that comparison. Portasio definitely doesn't. He's got an opportunity to really establish an alien world here, and he just kind of doesn't.
1: Yeah, a shame, alas. Well, Colossus reverts to his human form in all of the hubbub, and is suddenly and immediately embraced as the return of someone called the Savior. That's pretty exciting. Now...
0: Jean and Colossus, who have apparently seen the road to El Dorado, because again, X-Men can travel in time, I know it wasn't out at this point, Um, decide that the best possible move is to play
1: along. And Piotr kind of is enjoying the attention. Jean's trying to do some recon at the time, it doesn't really go very well, but they're interrupted by some mysterious arrivals.
0: But we're going to get back to those arrivals later, because we've got another set of X-Men to follow before those paths intersect. Uh, So let's see what Storm's been up to.
1: She has crash landed in the desert and she's rescued by a weird-looking hermit in a cloak.
0: So, this hermit rescues her, cooks her a meal while he's making cryptic comments and generally doing the cryptic mysterious hermit thing. He also is really insistent that she has to try his homebrew. And I kept on thinking there was going to be some kind of some kind of twist or catch to this, but no, it turns out he's just really proud of it.
1: I mean, I live in Portland, Oregon. You did for a number of years. I feel like this is a familiar event like this just seemed quite believable to me.
0: Well, it's not usually wine in Portland, but yeah, yeah, fair. no it's it's charming though like he's really excited and he's he's got all of these rare 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 plants in it and you get the impression he probably doesn't get a lot of visitors. so this is his chance to be like, no, no and then look what else I did
1: Yeah, I kind of immediately liked this guy. I mean he looks kind of intimidating because he's a haggard Portasio drawn character so he's very like beefy and uh, worrisome looking but still he's he's sweet.
0: No, he's the same kind of charming that Aragorn is when he first shows up as Strider in Fellowship of the Ring. And he's, he's just kind of wry and gruff, but friendly and clearly a good guy.
1: Mm-hmm. And so Storm stays here for a bit, recovering from smacking into the ground from who knows how high up. She hasn't been able to manipulate the weather around here because it's such an alien world, which, I mean... Okay,'ll I'll allow it. And one of the things you can do to show that time passes is to show characters wearing different clothing. Or in this case, now, Jay, I think we had different interpretations of, of what she was wearing here, right? So Storm is is wearing a tattered,
0: strapless dress. It's very, you know it's very much tailored to exactly her size. And there are two possibilities. One is that that this mysterious hermit just happened to have this sitting around, which I would not discount. I mean, he probably gets bored between <laughs> brewing batches of extremely rare wine um, and then, yeah, or, or that, that, that they somehow collectively or, or one or the other of them made it out of the remains of Storm's
1: costume. But the thing is, her costume wasn't even that fucked up. I mean, I think that's the more likely uh, option and that's, that's what I personally went with in, in my own interpretation as I read this. But I gotta say, it does at least look pretty awesome. I mean, she's got a big blue cape clasped with her X badge. She's got this white high-cut dress that, again, was probably formed from her costume. Uh, she's got these arm and leg wraps. It's pretty sweet. And that's the thing. When Portasio isn't worrying about a bunch of little cybernetic crap everywhere, he's a pretty cool character designer.
0: Yeah, he does tatter as well, which is going to serve him terrifically well in in Second Coming you know, decades later. But... What's going on, the reason she's wearing it, it's not that her costume was damaged. It's that they're in an arid desert, which is extremely, extremely, extremely hot.
1: Like, what the stranger saves her from isn't the fall, it's heat stroke. Okay, well, I guess this is logically consistent, but still, I'm entertained. Also, in this case, she took a drink, and then her costume got ripped up. that That's backwards. Aurora, what are you doing?
0: I mean, not playing the meta-drinking game that exists around our explanations of her comic? Pshaw. Anyway, The Stranger is concerned that the portal is growing and that the X-Men falling through may have exacerbated this problem, so he and Uro head off on some very good iguana monsters to do... something.
1: So while Jean and Colossus have been off playing Messiah, and Storm has been trading banter with a neighborhood hermit-slash-vintner, Archangel has gotten himself into some trouble.
0: Archangel comes to,
1: not lying on the ground like his compatriots, but hovering
0: over a battlefield where his wings have autonomously slaughtered a whole
1: bunch of people. And this isn't out of nowhere. I mean, we've seen that the metal wings that Apocalypse gave Archangel back when Archangel was the angel of death of the four horsemen... I mean, they kind of have their own murderous will of their own. This is the first time I think that they've totally taken over like this while he was unconscious. But it's kind of a cool image. And one thing I like about it is that Archangel, like you mentioned earlier, is unhooded. We just see his glorious blonde mullet of the early 90s. And that makes him seem a little more human. And that humanity contrasts, I think, pretty well with his very metallic wings. It's thematically appropriate.
0: Yeah, they look less and less like part of his body and more and more like an alien thing grafted onto him as his general design and costume move further and further away from the original Simonson death design. And as he's losing control of them, I think that's, that is really, really effective. Now the government troops here, um, some of whom were presumably killed in this as well are really impressed and they immediately invite Archangel home with them.
1: Because, yeah, he mostly slaughtered the rebels, the rebels plotting rebellion, if you want to Final Fantasy Tactics it, uh, who were going against the government forces.
0: And either way, they value having a super efficient killing machine on their side a lot more than they value the lives of their own troops, which we're going to see in, in much more detail fairly soon. Now, the place they're taking Angel back to is their fancy fortress, which is ruled by a pretty lady named Shahrazad who is the worldly avatar of something called the Triumvirate. We're never really going to find out what this is or exactly what the avatar's role is, just that it's a hereditary position. Um, It's been around for a fairly long time. And Scheherazoth immediately names Archangel Protector General of the Realm.
1: And just in time, because a messenger shows up with a notice that an old enemy has reappeared in a rebel camp. I wonder who that could be. All right, so now we've covered Jean, Colossus, Storm, and Archangel. Who's still missing?
0: Sunfire and Iceman. And Sunfire and Iceman's story is basically an afterthought. The two of them fall through the roof of a pub, get in a bar fight, and head outside, at which point they immediately discover, by way of the town crier, that there's a guy in another town, in fact, the savior, who was returned, and he can turn into metal. They figure that that is probably Colossus, and they'll just head off and meet up with him there. And also, Iceman ribs Sunfire about having been an X-Men for about five minutes, which is, is fairly charming.
1: At which point, Sunfire quits the team. Nah. Okay, so, we have all these disparate plot threads. If only they would come together. Well, they do! Now, remember
0: how we mentioned that a pair of mysterious strangers had shown up at the place where Jean and Colossus
1: were? If you're expecting that those might have been Aurora
0: and her mysterious host, you
1: are right on the money. But one thing you probably weren't expecting is who this hermit reveals himself to have been.
0: Colossus's long-lost brother. And actually, you might have been expecting that if you listened to the, the tease for this episode on the... Previous one, because we mentioned that
1: Mikhail Rasputin's going to be around. But indeed, everyone is, regardless, quite surprised, at which point Colossus probably says something along the lines of, What?
0: So that's the close of 285. 286 opens with Colossus overjoyed to see his brother Mikhail, who, as far as he knew, was killed in a tragic space explosion years ago.
1: Let's take it back to Uncanny X-Men number 99, when Colossus went to space, you know, right before Gene got turned into Phoenix, that whole thing. He mentions at one point that his brother Mikhail was a cosmonaut who burned up on the launch pad. So as much as we were talking about how the past is often disregarded in the 90s, well, this part isn't. A one-panel reference is now the inspiration for kind of the center of this plot. What we find out is that Mikhail Rasputin, along with his
0: government, decided to pull an Xavier. They faked his death so that he could do
1: more covert work as a mutant operative. And in fact, he went off with some space people and him, his surgery-laden spacesuit, his ill-defined energy powers, and his team, while exploring the hole in the ground in the Sakhalin Islands, ended up crashing into this other world years before.
0: Wait, wait. So when you say space people, you mean
1: fellow cosmonauts and or scientists, not people from space, Right. Uh, correct. Space people in the sense that my chosen profession for when I was a grown-up, when I was a little kid, was spaceman. Not astronaut, but spaceman.
0: Well, again, were you shooting for going to space or being from space? Because kids want to be stuff like dump trucks and zebras, too. Feasibility is not necessarily part of the picture.
1: Oh, Valid. But in this case, I wanted to go to space. As it turned out, that's really hard. There's a lot of education and training involved, and I don't think it would have worked out. So now I just work IT.
0: I thought I wanted to be an astronaut for a really long time, but it turned out I actually wanted to be a NASA historian, which I'm also not, so,
1: you yeah. know. That does sound pretty rad, though. Yeah. Well, anyway, Mikhail tells this tale and continues talking about how, indeed, he was saved from the crash by the impressively collared worldly avatar of the Triumvirate. But, like, not the one we just met, a different one, a dude, and ended up marrying this dude's daughter, Tramia's ass. The names in this world are pretty cool. They're very hyphenated. And the relationship somewhat soured when
0: Mikhail discovered that the Avatar had in fact murdered all the other travelers who had ever come through, including
1: the rest of Mikhail's crew. At this point, Mikhail got all heroic and led a rebellion against the despotic Avatar, which ended with him sealing the portal that had empowered the Triumvirate. Unfortunately, this sealing of the portal that Mikhail did with his, again, very confusing powers, killed everybody nearby on both sides within a certain radius. Whoops. There's actually a really nice panel, as this is being described, as this flashback is being illustrated, of the Avatar and Tramiazath being sort of flash-burned into shadows. Portasio, when he doesn't get too lost in excess lines, is a really good draftsman, and he can really infuse a lot of emotion into his panels. And here he absolutely does. Piotr and Mikhail dis- come to a point of
0: disagreement here. Mikhail doesn't want to close the portal, because while he can do it, It's, yeah, the backlash is going to be worse this time. He's worried that it'll maybe kill everyone in the world, not everyone nearby him. Colossus thinks there has to be another way and they just need to work together to find it.
1: Man, Colossus would play straight Paragon in Mass Effect and I love him for it. Aw. Mikhail thinks that Colossus is a dreamer, Colossus thinks Mikhail is a coward. It's actually a pretty uh, well-scripted section of of the comic. Like, what Byrne does with Portasio's plot here, I believe it. Like, this arc doesn't do some things right. It does come off largely as a pale imitation of the Judgment War. But we've seen so few stories that focus on Colossus, except for that one really bizarre Marvel Comics Presents story. I guess there was that. But as far as focusing on traditional Colossus, that doesn't happen often, and I like that we get to see that here. And the Piotr that we see written or scripted by Byrne and written by Portasio... I believe this is an evolution of the character, and I appreciate it.
0: Yeah, he's written really well here. And again, this is it's it's this isn't a bad story. It's just a story that again invites comparisons to a much better one that happened not long enough ago for for it to be lost in the haze of history. So Colossus, as X-Men do in arguments, kicks on his powers. He goes metal, dramatically sheds his clothes. You can take a drink now of extremely fancy hermit wine or whatever you want. And Colossus yells at his brother.
1: You wish to speak of pain and suffering? You do not know the meaning of these words. You think because you cry, because you yield to the sorrows which envelop you, that you are more man than I? I struggle for a cause greater than myself, and I have more than once saved the lives of others. And though it shames me, I too have taken lives. The true difference between you and I is that I keep going, and you have given up? Harsh, but not inaccurate. Mm, I love Burns' Colossus dialogue here, and Mikhail is shamed, and he runs away. He just leaves, leaving Storm to comfort Colossus.
0: Harsh, and Colossus is having a rough time. He his his country has crumbled and the brother who he thought was dead and turned out to be alive just as quickly turned out to very much not be the man Pyotr expected him to be.
1: Yeah, that's the thing. Colossus's roots, they run deep, but they're getting pulled away more and more and more. And unfortunately, as tends to happen in X-Men, that's only going to get worse. Yep.
0: Everyone he loves will die. And then he'll die. But he'll come back. And they'll... Okay, it's complicated. Anyway, back on Earth, Xavier and Forge are flying around just kind of reporting on the situation, checking in as one does. And as it turns out, there are reports of black holes opening all around the world. We see these, and we see these in the usual means of demonstrating that something dramatic and important is happening with a, a set of monitors, each of which has an important science guy in the Marvel Universe on it. And you know how I mentioned that there are certain things that just capital C change in this era and certain traditions that will no longer be upheld, like Sunfire quitting the team? yeah. Yeah, and one of those, and we this happened last time there was a big event too, super doctor astronaut Peter Corbeau is notably absent.
1: Right? I mean, they consulted Nick Fury, Hank Pym, and Reed Richards. Sure, but if you have the very reality of the Earth itself unraveling, if you have two worlds merging into one, if you have every field of science being simultaneously relevant and irrelevant, you need super Dr. Astronaut, Peter Corbeau, former roommate of the Hulk, founder of StarCore, amazing sailor and swimmer, wearer of tight black t-shirts. He could save every one of us. I feel like we should be using
0: like the Flash Gordon theme instead.
1: Flash Gordon is just an homage to the tale of Peter Corbeau. It's like, how uh, was it Jack London that talked about, you know, man versus nature, man versus himself? Those are the cores of stories. Peter Corbeau is the core of heroism. He is the platonic ideal of what it means to be not just a man, but but a hero. Also a really good sailor.
0: That, too. And this is, you know, people talk about... The disillusion of core traditional
1: values.
0: And this is the first time I really feel like that phrase means anything to me other than upset bigots.
1: (laughs) Right? I don't think we're upset bigots. I think we just recognize that Peter Corbeau is awesome.
0: Yeah, I mean, I feel like as core values go, Peter Corbeau is one
1: worth preserving. Mm -hmm. If you take nothing else away from this podcast, listeners, then take that. I guess we have to cover more story now. Okay right, so back in Canon, um, the Avatar's forces are shaking down a village to find the other missing mutants, Iceman and Sunfire and sure enough, they're nearby.
0: And our heroes you know see the the forces and decide it's gonna be the fight. It's gonna be a fight. And by now they're bantering and they're mostly bantering, I think because Scott Lobdell is now scripting instead of John Byrne. So Iceman asks,
1: Care to do the honors, sun Sun?
0: This is a situation more suited to your penchant for grandstanding.
1: Too true. And as the caption says... 32 degrees later. And we see the bad guys encased in ice. Scott Lobdell is a good fit for this, I think. Iceman and Sunfire bantering, that's something that not every scripter could get right.
0: I really don't entirely buy it. I mean, Sunfire bantering with Iceman.
1: Oh, you know what the problem is, and what we forgot to mention, is that in between those lines, Sunfire quits the team. He doesn't, though, and yeah, he never joined the team. That that doesn't stop him from quitting. He's Sunfire.
0: Like, he's just in there with them. He's not an X-Man.
1: Well, because he keeps quitting, obviously. But anyway, Archangel, meanwhile, is training against the Avatar's bodyguards, trying to become a better and better Protector General, as he has, like, no memory of what's going on. Again, Judgment War light. He's still really out of it, though, and his wings just kill everyone he's training with. Oh.
0: Fortunately, the Avatar is entirely fine with this, and it also turns out she is controlling his mind through touch. She has some some kind of touch telepathy that that lets her get into his head, but she has to regularly touch him to re-up it.
1: So of course, this being the 90s, she does so through semi to non-consensual kissing. So make out, make Archangel murder everyone. Hmm.
0: Yeah, that's, that's non-consensual. He's mind-controlled at the time, and there are also factors
1: that he's... He, even, even if he weren't, there would be factors he was unaware he was consenting to. Well, there you go. Shaharazath, you're a total jerk, and I'm really glad that you're gonna lose. Yes, she definitely
0: is. Um, so tomorrow they're gonna be reclaiming the portal from the rebels, which means war. Archangel leads the Avatar's forces against the rebels and Jean, Storm, and Colossus, who is now armed with a big ol' log. I think they're called Cabers in Scotland. Now, there's still no Mikhail, so they don't think they can actually close the portal, but they're gonna at least
1: try. Thankfully, Iceman and Sunfire use their combined elemental powers to somehow zap some sense into Archangel. He gets back in control of himself and stops fighting for the bad guys.
0: Yay!
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Colossus, though, is shot in the melee, and it looks pretty bad. Oh, right in the melee! (laughs) Right? But Mikhail, who has been sort of skulking around the outskirts, not wanting to get involved... That's what brings him back into the battle and makes him decide that he's got to close this portal. I mean, not only are all these people dying, fighting over it, but the portal is expanding, and soon it's going to swallow, like, everything in sight. It is going to crash this unnamed world and Earth into each other. Like, they're going to just sort of merge and shatter, and everyone will die, and it will be terrible. So, basically, he sacrifices everyone nearby here, or he sacrifices two full planets.
0: Alternate plan! What if they use a great big team-up attack to close the portal without destroying the world? That sounds like a good plan. So,
1: um, yeah, they do that, and then Sunfire quits. He doesn't. So this is my question. How do they get back through? I mean, there's a telekinetic bubble that seems to physically move through the portal since the worlds haven't merged yet, like Gene does that. It's a little ill-defined. For me... It was cool enough to see all these powers combined and just metric tons of dialogue surrounding everything that I didn't need a logical explanation necessarily. And that, I think, is one of the ways to enjoy the 90s. There's so much going on all the time. And if you stop and think about it, it doesn't always make sense. But maybe that's fine. Maybe if you just say they used all their powers and through the power of friendship and also the X gene, they were able to just make it all okay. Maybe that's enough. This is one of those points where I'm
0: actually kind of sad that Havoc isn't on the team, because I feel like this is definitely a Care Bear stare moment.
1: Ooh, yeah, good point. He could totally make that work.
0: They successfully closed the portal, but there's one big problem. Now Mikhail's not breathing. Colossus manages to pull off CPR
1: successfully, um, very carefully, I assume, since he's made of metal at the time. Right, I mean, with CPR, like I remember taking that course with the weird little torso face dummy back in the day. You can break ribs even if you do it right. Colossus is made of organic steel. But he's also presumably
0: fairly used to moderating his strength in that form, so. And Colossus also has the power of passionate exhortation on his side.
1: Breathe, blast you! There is much you have to do. You have not even met our sister. We, We have a sister? Her name is Liana. How old is she? That depends on who you ask. I do not understand. It gets complicated. X-Men! X-Men, it gets complicated. So there's our arc. I mean, I think we had we have the seeds of a good story and we have elements that really, really work. I just wish that, well, first of all, that there hadn't been the chaos of scripts being uh, having to be turned in late due to art being turned in late and creative teams changing all the time. But I feel like with a little more room, this could have been a cool Judgment War esque story, you know?
0: Yeah, this is—it's not a bad story, but there's so much that could have been developed further that I would have liked to have seen. And I think, you know, part of my general antipathy toward Ms. Mikhail Rasputin comes from the fact that he's just this. Really, sort of poorly,
1: poorly developed messiah figure when we first meet him. I mean, he's also a an amateur vintner who enjoys helping women rip their clothing up. Like, I feel like maybe we could read between the lines and refashion them, and refashion them. It's not like this
0: isn't a salacious thing because again, she has this very well tailored garment when you know on the on the other side of whatever they do with her uniform.
1: I suppose that's true. I just like to think of him as this very full of feelings and slightly prurient, like, emo, hermit, wine brewer, ill-defined energy-powered dude. I guess that's kind of what he is. So, maybe just read
0: Judgment War again, is what we're saying here. That's the A plot. We've also got a B plot, and in this case, B is for Bishop.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Indeed it is. Because, in some far-flung Somewhere, a location that's not really defined, a trio of mulleted, face tattooed, colorful trench coat and tight combo wearing future escape ne'er do wells, you know, Fitzroy's buds, they drink and cause trouble in a random bar. By trouble, you mean murders. Like, they are definitely doing a lot of murder and implicitly, possibly some other stuff. Well, we don't know that yet, although we will find it out. What we do know is that there is a really sweet page of back-and-forth panels between them being sort of generally douchey, we don't know that they're murderous yet, on the left column and on the right column, close-ups of guns or scary eyes or scanner views of the people who are watching slash pursuing them. It's a nice little tension builder right there. Now, this is, of course, the XSE, Bishop's Group, on the right, who's stalking them. It's not immediately evident, though, and it looks just sort of like a horror movie. I like it.
0: I like too that we're seeing the very, very traditional play of, of, of people watching
1: on monitors whom who we can't see. But in this case, it's the good guys. And that's the thing with the XSC. At this point, they're only sort of good guys. I mean, yes, they're from the Xavier School Enforcers, or Xavier Security Enforcers later. And yes, we know that Bishop is going to join the X-Men. I think that was telegraphed from the start, from his first appearance. But they're also tracking down bad guys and murdering them, which X-Men has, I would say, more than 50% of the time been against.
0: So, what you're saying is that they're basically hardcore fans who are taking their passion for a specific philosophy or a specific set of symbols way too far into the point where it's actually doing concrete harm. This metaphor keeps working.
1: Doesn't it? And so does the dialogue. Bishop
0: comes in with his stone cold cop
1: talk. How's he going to play, boys? We're all a long, long way from home with no chance of ever getting back. You can turn yourselves into the proper authorities, or...
0: Blow it out your ear, Bishop! If we're stuck, we aim to be stuck on top!
1: Wrong answer. And then there were so many laser blasts! So many laser
0: blasts! Yep. Now, they check in on the bar, and the bad guys have already killed everyone there. So, Bishop and his buds head off to find the other escapees. Now... Because these dudes do not bother coordinating with any non-future law enforcement types, the population and media just sees one group of mutants with facial tattoos killing another group of mutant facial tattoos and concludes that it must be some sort of mutant gang war.
1: And in fact, Trish Tilby, everyone's favorite reporter from X-Factor, is the one who's reporting, and she's kind of uh, sensationalizing it. Um... Yeah, Trish Tilby... You
0: really never learns how to not stoke paranoia. Like, you think she's learned her lesson,
1: but no, every damn time. Okay, that said, even if your report is unwise, it does start with her thanking Chuck. So my personal canon is that she is in fact thanking Chuck Chirkle, the anchor who was previously speaking, my favorite alliteratively named reporter from Walter Simonson's Thor. I love Chuck Chirkle. I just like saying Chuck Churkle. You, you want to just throw in a couple more? Get it out of your system. Chuck Circle, Chuck Circle, Chuck Circle. Uh, Chuck Circles
0: aside, you've got questions. Alan Knight asks on Tumblr: I feel that Claremont was going to use Sarah Gray for something that never came to happen, but she disappeared, and we don't get to see her again until Phalanx Covenant, seven-ish years later. Do we know if this is true, and Claremont had a bigger
1: role for her in mind? Right. So Sarah Gray is the sister of Jean Gray. And I think that was actually the case from what we've been able to find out. So you're probably referring and talking about setting up a bigger role to 1981's X-Men-focused Bizarre Adventures number 27 and the first of its three stories, which was called The Brides of Atuma, which is kind of a great name. So in that story, Sarah was kidnapped along with her sister Jean by the well-hatted Atlantean jerk Atuma who wanted to turn them into his brides and turn them into water breathers and that was no good. Now, What's relevant is that at one point he referred to Sarah as a mutant, but that was never really followed up on until it almost was when when Chris Claremont heard that Marvel wanted to bring Jean Grey back from the dead after the Dark Phoenix saga to found X-Factor. He hated the idea. He didn't want the Dark Phoenix saga's ending undone as he saw it. So he suggested a bunch of alternatives. I know Dazzler was going to be one potential fifth member instead. I'm not sure if that was Claremont or somebody else who suggested it. But one person he did suggest was Sarah. I mean, the groundwork had already been laid in the Brides of Atuma that she might be a mutant. So in this case, she was going to have the power to detect and or or activate latent mutant powers, which would have fit nicely with X Factor's original MO. Instead, she just fell off the map for decades and was then killed off panel by the Phalanx. Ooh. All right, so Hatching Phoenix asks on Tumblr Which member of Excalibur's supporting cast do you think would do the best on the Great British Bake Off? Conversely, who do you think would be the most entertaining on the Great British Bake Off?
0: So first of all, I love this question. Thank you. Um, this question made me really happy. The answer to both those questions, I think, is die Thomas, with the qualifier that while considering this, I came to the conclusion that the members of TechNet would absolutely get super, super, super into the Great British Bake Off and possibly crash it at some point. That is so easy to picture. Oh, I want that to happen now. And I also have a bonus unsolicited answer for you, which is that if I could put one actual great British Bake Off contestant on Excalibur, it would unquestionably be Ruby Tendo because she's rad as hell and basically a superhero
1: anyway, but also because she has really great and very Alan Davis-y facial expressions. How's her hair? I mean, if you're going to be an Excalibur, I feel like you have to have Alan Davis-compatible hair. I haven't seen the show. It's sometimes swoopy. It It varies. Okay, well, I'm in full support. So, there we go. Continuity and, um, alternate continuity.
0: So, we are an entirely listener-supported podcast, and some of those tiers of support come with acknowledgement on the show from a range of fictional characters and concepts. And today, I am turning the mic over to a combination of words I never really expected to say, a sexy Mikhail Rasputin.
1: Come, wanderers, into my humble desert dwelling. You look thirsty. Please, Try some wine. I've distilled it from the very concepts of longing and regret, and it is amazing. What are your names? Dixie Lee and Alan. You can call me the sensual, emotionally intense stranger with a dark secret, but a heart of soulful gold. Please make yourselves more comfortable. It's probably easiest to tear up your outfits and refashion them into something looser and far more revealing. Come, let us disrobe, drink, and speak of sexy, sexy sadness. And with that,
0: Jay and Miles explain The X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon and produced by Matt Hunter.
1: New episodes of our show come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at explainthexmen.com. Please rate and review us. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions for every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and stay ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, our bodies will be at Emerald City Comic Con. But our voices will be right here, indulging in a grand X Men tradition as we double back in time to cover Bizarre Adventures number 27.